G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where we're going to wrap up the month of March. Dave, how are you? I'm not too bad, Rob. I've had a good weekend. I actually had a pretty good month. How about you? Yeah, I'm I'm not too bad. I've been so busy that I'll be pleased to see the end of March, although April's already looking pretty busy itself, especially with Easter coming up. Yeah, early Easter always makes a year feel very, very top-heavy at the start, and there. Be glad to get that over with. But hey, it's a long weekend. Exactly right. Now, Dave, before we rip into today's episode, I wanted to say something briefly about your Blake 7 podcast, Spacefall. Oh, yes. And that's simply congratulations. It's been going absolute bloody gangbusters. Oh, thanks. No, we're really happy with uh, how it's been received. Uh, Three full episodes are now out at the time you're hearing this podcast. And look, uh, the reaction has been really, really positive. We've had a lot of response on social media people have been really uh, positive in their feedback frankly you know although you don't do it for the downloads the downloads have been just beyond anything we expected uh, i had in mind you know what we might get for the first episode compared to you know what i know our goodies podcast was getting at the start and what i know doctor who podcasts get and we massively exceeded that and about 80 percent have come back for episode two so far and hopefully episode three will be going just as well so yeah, we're really stoked, but also really enjoying the conversations. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I thought that was entirely possible. If, if people remember our conversation, I said, look, I think there's an appetite for Blake 7 podcasts out there because there just aren't that many. And as you said, there are, there are really none that are quite doing it the way you're doing it. So I think, wow, I think you've captured the market there. <laughs> we're definitely very keen to have those uh, more in-depth conversations. It is a very, very... Uh, deep dive into Blake 7 as I think I said on our last episode mm. and uh, yeah people are people are reacting to that I think it's a show that after 40 years needs a good deep dive yeah absolutely so look it up people if you're into Blake 7 Spacefall and uh, even if you've never watched Blake 7 before Dave I'm sure people can just start watching the episodes they're very cheap to buy on DVD and catch up only three episodes in so far uh, they are and they're also on YouTube but don't tell the BBC <laughs> Well, I, I highly recommend the DVDs, people. <laughs> they, are, they are very cheap. I think mine were about 15 bucks a season from JB Hi-Fi. That may have been a sale, though. Yeah, and there is a full series box set coming out very soon as well, which is the perfect excuse to listen to our podcast. Absolutely. Shall we get into some news? Uh, we should, and I believe you've got the first item. I do. This is going back uh, probably by the time people hear this uh, three weeks or so now, but uh, Matt Smith has appeared on Desert Island Discs, and I don't know about you, Dave, but I actually listened to the podcast of Desert Island Discs on my uh, on my phone going to work. I can't say I do that, so you'll have to lead me through this one, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, Desert Island Discs is a, uh, a concept, as many of our UK listeners will already know, and they'll be saying, Rob, you don't have to explain it, but yes, I do for the Americans. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a concept where a celebrity or, um, you know, maybe a famous scientist or a sports person comes on, and they talk about their top eight songs they would take to a desert island, and they play each song in its entirety, although they don't do that on the podcast. They only play like 10 seconds of each song. Uh, right. Which is lovely because sometimes I don't like the songs and I don't want to hear the songs uh, and I just want to hear the chat. And they also have to nominate a, uh, a luxury item they would take to this desert island as well uh, and a book. And it's just such a, a fun, diverse, interesting show. And for Matt Smith to appear on it in the past, doctors who appeared on, I think, uh, Tenant's been on it and uh, William Hartnell's been on it. 
That's right. Yes, I do remember hearing that. Yeah. Uh, I believe there was a John Pertwee episode, but it's been lost. It's been junked at some stage over the years. But uh, even at this point in time, even with the junkings, uh, there's still about 2,000 episodes online that you can look up. And it's just it's just phenomenal. I love the show. Yeah, it's certainly got a reputation. I mean, I've, I've only seen one or two episodes on YouTube or on documentaries, but it is a very famous show. Oh, absolutely. And and Smithy doesn't disappoint. He comes across, and you might have detected this in him, I, I sort of had already, but he comes across as a real lad. I think that's the best way I can describe him. Yeah, that's that's fair from what I've seen of him. Yeah, and when he was, he, he talks about getting offered the role of Doctor Who, and the the production team are like, you know, so do you watch the show? And he's like, no, I'm in the pub at that time on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was great. He says some controversial stuff in it too. Of course, he talks about the Crown, and he says. Um, you know, he thinks Prince Philip's a bit of a rock star. That might be controversial with some people, but the really controversial line he said was, I agree with his decision not to bow to his wife or kneel to his wife. Right. Mm. He just comes out and says, I thought, geez, in today's climate, that's a pretty brave thing to say, Smithy. Yeah, it's it's a perfectly valid view, but it's not one that... Uh... It's not one the tabloids would just leave go by, I suspect. Yeah, but you know the interesting thing? In an age where people on Twitter love to jump on every single thing, I've seen tons of people say, oh, that Desert Island disc was fantastic, dot, dot, dot. And nothing's been said about that line. I'm thinking, did I imagine it? <laughs> Am I the only one who picked up on him saying that? <laughs> well, there you go. But uh, yeah, look uh, look it up online, folks. Uh, you can stream it just from the BBC website if you don't want to uh, subscribe to the podcast. It's well worth the listen. He's uh, He is a lad. Oh, that's one to check out. Further news, Robin, this is following on from something we announced last year. Mm-hmm. We have more information about the new set of Target books that's coming out that's right. in just a week or so. Hasn't that come up quickly since all those months ago where you found the news on on that Australian bookseller site, and now here they are. Yeah, so again, the same titles, Rose by Russell T. Davies, Christmas Invasion by Jenny T. Colgan, Day of the Doctor by Stephen Moffat, and Twice Upon a Time by Paul Cornell, Mm. and being joined by a paperback reprint of James Goss's City of Death. Now, I'm I'm assuming that's going to be some sort of cut-down version of City of Death, because his City of Death was like a big, thick, hardback sort of thing I remember seeing. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. All the page counts on the websites I've checked still say 224 pages, which I suspect is just a placeholder. But maybe they're going to be slightly longer than your traditional targets. I don't know. But the packaging is certainly being done in the style of the collector's edition target reprints that have been coming out over the last three or four years. And the covers are even being done not by Chris Achilleos, but very much in the style of Chris Achilleos. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there was a bit of talk about this on Twitter in this past week because uh, someone pointed out that maybe Chris Achilleos no longer has the job after those botched covers he did. What was it? It was the visitation. Was it the visitation? It looked like Davo's nose was about half an inch too high on his face. Yes, he did visitation, uh, vengeance on Varos, and Battlefield. That's right. And I didn't think that were that bad, actually, but some people did, apparently. Oh, Davo's nose on the visitation got to me. Colin on Vengeance on Varus looked like he'd walked into the back of a cement truck. Uh, it wasn't as bad as the Davo one, but... Um, so, yeah, the, the new artist has come on board. I can't think of his name offhand, but he is doing a dab hand with them. They look very good. Yeah, look, these are going to be a wonderful, nice collector's edition. I'm... I very rarely get excited about merchandise, as you know, mm-hmm. but 
this is this is something I'm really really looking forward to. Well, I guess it's practical merchandise. You can actually read it, and I think it will be interesting to read Russell's take on you know one of his scripts, or even Paul Cornell's take on a Stephen Moffat script. And and these are of course writers that we've you know are familiar with. Uh, the three of them have written for Doctor Who on the TV series. Uh, Paul Cornell and Russell T Davies both wrote for the New Adventures, and in Paul Cornell's case, the Missing Adventures as well. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what they do with this, particularly as you know they're fans who grew up with the Target novels like we did, and will be very familiar with all of those Terence Dix tropes and uh, cliches and everything. So I'm kind of waiting to see if there's going to be any little subtle references in them or, or anything like that to make it feel even more like a target book well i think paul cornell in particular really really looks up to terence um mm, that is true if any of them were going to do it i think it's him uh yes and given that he's doing twice upon a time which has you know old series doctor and tardis console and everything there's going to be the opportunity for him to have some fun there as well so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Hmm, good one. I do want to touch briefly on the new Doctor Who logo. People will be saying, Rob, that's ancient news. Yes, I know, but the news dropped about, what, about eight hours after we recorded last month's episode? <laughs> we, we literally recorded one evening, went to bed, woke up, and there was a new logo. Yeah, so I, I do want to touch on it briefly and get your thoughts, Dave. For me... I'm okay with it. It does the job. It, it looks kind of interesting. I don't think it particularly stands out, but it's inoffensive. I am passionately indifferent to it. Mm. I'm, I'm not somebody who gets particularly worked up over logos. It does it, its job. It says the words Doctor Who. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it looks very nice. It, it's got a very futuristic, very sort of modern feel to it. You know, I, I do agree with the comments some have made that I do like my doctor to be over the word who. Mm. That's traditionalist in me, but let's face it, it's not going to affect the quality of the program. No, no, not at all. So, yeah, we'll see we'll see how it looks in the in the credits. Speaking of merchandise that I'm looking forward to. <laughs> yes? What, you've got more? I've got more. They are releasing a Blu-ray box set of Season 12. Ah, uh, yes. Now... I think my reaction to this was the same as almost every other fans that I've seen, which is, oh, those cynical bastards, they think they can get us to fork out for another copy of this. Well, they've got me wrong. <laughs> they're not sucking me in. Wait, they're doing what? Okay, I'm buying it. Take all my money. <laughs> <laughs> was that the one-hour Tom Baker interview that they're tacking onto it? It's it, Look, it's everything. When I saw the announcement, I mean, season 12, there is not a bad story in season 12. Mm. It is a wonderful season. It looks brilliant. It's it's Tom at its best. It's Harry. It's Sarah. As I say, there's they're, they're just great stories. I mean, when when Revenge of the Cybermen is the weak link in a story, that says how good the quality of the mall is. Very true. And to then look at all the extra stuff that's going around. I mean, the packaging looks brilliant. But yes, they've got a new interview with Tom Baker on there. They're doing new documentaries for Sontaran Experiment and Revenge of the Cybermen. And the real clincher, they're putting the Tom Baker years on as an extra. Now, mm. Rob. I still own a VHS player, partly <laughs> so I can play my copy of the Tom Baker years because it is so, so wonderful and terrible, but wonderful. Yeah, yeah, Dave. I, I've got to admit, I I was talking to people about it when the news came out. I said, well, look, I own all the stories and, and the way they look is, is pretty good, you know, maybe even better than they were on broadcast. 
to artificially have them bumped up a bit to blu-ray do i need that how many times would i watch these new documentaries they'll pop up on youtube i'm sure and i'll watch them once or twice and then probably won't need to see them again do i need to do this and i'm thinking i'll probably do it but maybe not straight away i might wait for the price to drop yeah, look, the price will drop. I'm, I'm really keen for these. I mean, they were good DVDs in themselves. The stuff on Robot was really... I love Robot. The <laughs> stuff on Robot was really good. It had that making of Genesis of the Daleks documentary by Ian Levine that I think famously like broke the entire budget for several years <laughs> for, for the restoration team. And Ian, Ian wasn't invited back after that, I don't mm, believe. Mm. Um, and even on The Revenge of the Cybermen, that's got that sex, lies, and videotape. DV, uh, documentary. I don't know if that's what it's actually called, but something like that about tape trading back in the day, which is a really good doco because it acknowledges something that was going on that was, you know, technically illegal, uh, but is now just sort of looked on as, hey, everyone did it. It's okay. Yeah. So look, I really hope this succeeds. I think this is a really loving way to do the Blu-ray releases, and it got my mind thinking. You know, what are the next seasons that I would want to see come out? Mm-hmm. The obvious one, I think, would be season seven, because, again, four absolute classic stories that all look really good, especially Spearhead from Space. And look, I need a sixth copy of Spearhead from Space, you know, <laughs> after two VHSs and a couple of DVDs. Who need, who, you know, need another copy of Spearhead from Space. Well, it's already prepped for Blu-ray, so they've already got one down in the can. Yeah, uh, I think season one, obviously, minus Marco Polo, unless something happens in the next couple of months, who knows? Mm-hmm. Season 1 would be really good because that's a lovely arc. It's a good place for people to start. Season 18, I think, is another one that looks gorgeous and would be great on Blu-ray, and there's a lot to say. And Season 26 would be the other one that I think would look really, really good. Mm, no, some good some good choices there. I haven't actually put much thought into that, but something I have put thought into, and now I'll, I'll gauge your opinion on this, we're just talking about the new logo. And, of course, this Blu-ray set has the new Doctor Who logo on it. How do you feel about that? Uh, look, that's kind of something that I'm used to as a Doctor Who fan. I mean, from 1996 onwards, everything had the Pertwee slash Telemovie logo. And, you know, I've still got merchandise now that has absolutely no relation to the McCoy years. It's got that awful McCoy logo on it. So that's just, just the way, way it works. You know, if you're going to brand the show, the show you, you kind of brand everything, I guess. True. But I was it got me thinking, there seems to be a bit of a push for this logo like it's on t-shirts and they're putting it on you know the season 12 blu-ray set and i'm thinking that's well and good you know maybe i'd like to see the the diamond logo on the tom set and just as if they did a davo set i'd like to see the neon logo you know sort of the traditional logos and then i thought what happens in five years time when we have a new logo and a new doctor will suddenly the blu-rays have a new logo on them and not be as uniform as say the dvds which all look the same uh, look, it's definitely possible. I think what the DVDs did was they picked the logo that was current at the time they started and then just stuck with it. Mm. And because the VHSs came out in the wilderness years, they had that special uh, marketing version of the Diamond logo, you may recall. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it just got me thinking, because if, if you know there are these pushes that this is the new logo now, you must use the new logo, whether that would affect the releases in the future. Because I can't see too many Blu-ray box sets coming out per year. Gosh, part of me even wonders if they'll even do all of the, the seasons in time. So maybe it's not a good idea, folks, to sell your DVDs just yet. Yeah, that is something that crossed my mind as well. Will they start releasing these on a regular basis? Will it be one, maybe two a year? And what will they do with the... 60s season so everything up to season six 
Uh, none of them are complete. Yeah. So, you know, will, will they release them as box sets with stories missing or with restorations of missing episodes or what? That'll be interesting to see if they do do the black and white years. And let, let's be honest, of anything that is not needing a Blu-ray release, it is, you know, 425 line mm. uh, black and white you know, film. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, some people are, are already getting very excited. Oh, I'll have a complete set on Blu-ray. Mm, I'm not sure if you will, because even if they do them two a year, which is which is you know a fair release schedule, uh, are we going to be sitting here 13 years from now <laughs> saying, oh, they finally finished this set? Yep, I've been waiting for my season 17 Blu-ray set for 13 goddamn years. <laughs> what do you think the other one is that they'd release with season 17 as the last two? Season twenty-four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, or, or they'll you know hold something like season fourteen back just to know that they're going to finish on a bang. Remember that they finished the DVDs with Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, yeah, very true. All right, let's move on from that. Uh, some some stories. Uh, I saw one in particular in the Radio Times recently. Alan Cumming announcing that he's going to play King James I in Doctor Who in this new series. But I don't think the BBC knew that he was going to be announcing this, Dave. Yes, this was a bit of an accidental leak, I suspect. How do you do that after, you know, decades in show business and knowing how this works to, to just announce, self-announce your new role? Uh, I don't know. I guess that he was just careless. Yeah. Or maybe he was just being cheeky. Is Alan coming after all? It is. Um, and, of course, for people who, who, who don't know who Alan Cumming is, of course, look up his um, filmography. And at the very front of that, you'll see a Doctor Who-related film. Do you know which one I'm talking about, Dave? He was in, and now I haven't looked this up, and I'm literally diving into my memory. Was he in the Air Zone Solution? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> Deep cuts there. It's about his second recorded uh, role of a BBV video. Uh, yeah, I had forgotten about that. I always think of him, of course, as being in Bernard and the Genie. Mm, yes. With uh, Rowan Atkinson and Lenny Henry. Yeah, he, he's been in some good stuff over the years. Also some mediocre stuff and seems to be doing a lot of voice stuff in recent mm. years too. Uh, not always films that I might watch. Um, I had to have a good look through the filmography and I was like, oh, that's what he's been up to. Okay. Be interesting to see how he does King James the First. Yes, and of course that means that we are going to get an historical of some sort in the new season. I knew you'd be enjoying that. <laughs> yeah, and and James the First as well. I mean, that's an interesting time, and uh, I'm sure there'll be a few Scots out there annoyed that he didn't say he was playing James the First and Sixth. <laughs> and we have a few Scots listening to this podcast. Hello, lads. Yep. How are you, Stephen? <laughs> I was thinking of Jeff. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yes. Uh, Sad news. Look, we don't mention the passing of every person who's associated with Doctor Who because mm. you could do a whole podcast on that every month. But we did want to mention Peter Miles because he just was so amazing in the show. I mean, he was in my all-time favourite story, The Silurians as Dr. Lawrence, where he's, he's, he's possibly the best incompetent base commander that we have in the whole sort of... <laughs> you know, base under siege trope for 10 years. And there's been a few. And there's been a few. He's he is arguably the best of those intransigent and base commanders. <laughs> he's in another one of my favourites, uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. He's in, you know, often ranked the number one or at least a top five story, Genesis of the Daleks, as NIDA. Mm. So, you know, some iconic stories he's been in there. But I thought it also worth mentioning that as well as being brilliant in those, he was in stuff like The Paradise of Death, 
the 1993-ish audio play with John Pertwee and Nick Courtney and Liz Sladen. He also appeared in a couple of BBV productions in the 90s. So this is a guy who was doing the right thing by the show and by fandom when there was nothing to gain from and when it wasn't cool. He was doing the conventions. He was doing fan productions. He was doing audio productions. He was being, you know, a really good guy and supportive of the show when nobody else was and when everybody else had forgotten about it. So I think that gives him extra kudos. Plus, he was in two episodes of Blake 7. Well, there you go. Uh, Yeah, and look, I'll just add that listening to some of the UK podcasts that I I think we both listen to, uh, some of the people on those podcasts had met him in real life and had commented that he was a really, really nice guy. And these are podcasts that aren't afraid to say if someone's been a prick to them. So, you know, I I, I take it as read that he actually was one one of the goodies. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Caldor City series is another one that he was involved with. So again, just doing these these things that he really didn't have to, but just because he wanted to share the love of the show. So yeah, sad to see Peter Miles pass. Yeah, Wale. Uh, finally, for the news, this is this is just a small piece, Dave. Um, David Tennant's been talking up the new season of Doctor Who. <laughs> well, that's nice of him. It is nice of him because of the Chris Chibnall connection. Tennant's been, you know, I think because they, they all know each other and they might call each other from time to time. And, and his take is that Chibbers and Jodie Whittaker are both, you know, just bouncing off the ceiling, just really, really excited about what they're doing. And he says, you know, he thinks it's going to rub off on the show. And I thought, you know, that could be true. This new start could be a more fun doctor maybe a doctor that appeals uh more to kids i certainly saw news and this wasn't a news piece i was going to talk about but i certainly saw news that her first novel is very much a kid's novel the plot of it sounded fantastic about going to some planet where they they've got seeds and you know there's some really dangerous seed and all this it sounded really great but it was for kids and i thought you know what i wonder if this new season could be a bit bit more kiddie friendly or at least a bit more fun Yes, there you go. That might be the better way to put it. Uh, and that, that could be a really interesting take. I, I think that it's wonderful that they're enthusiastic about the show. I would definitely hope that the leading performer and the showrunner are enthusiastic and excited about their show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you you kind of hope they're not. Um, hopefully there is also a cynical bastard somewhere on the team to occasionally tell them when their exuberance is maybe a little too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always important in a good production but yeah I'm I'm glad to hear they're enjoying making the show I'd be worried if they weren't <laughs> and I think the other thing he was saying was that he knows some of the writers he's brought on board because not all the writers are known at this point in time in fact we, we probably know more of the writers who aren't doing it because Mark Gatiss isn't doing it and uh, some of the other more popular writers of recent times like Jamie Matheson they're not involved anymore so mm. there, there's all this new blood coming in and, and who knows what that will create yeah that is exciting I'm very interested to see what sort of takes some new writers have on the show mm. alright shall we rattle on uh, we should now a couple of minor topics I've commenced Trial Watch, as mentioned in our last episode. Hashtag Trial Watch. How's it going, Dave? I'm four episodes in. Yes. So it, it is It is a really interesting experiment, even so far, because <laughs> I'm watching Trial one episode a week. Mm-hmm. And I've never done that with Doctor Who before, because unlike the UK and Australia, Doctor Who was always a, a nightly thing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sorry, the, the, the classic series was always a nightly thing. So this idea of having to wait a whole week to see the next episode is really weird. And it was interesting, even just watching episode four, I was sitting there going, 
hang on, what did happen in episode one? That's right. And I've got another, <laughs> what, um, 10 to go. Yeah. Yes, you do. Uh, yeah, but look, I've actually really enjoyed the first four episodes. I think they are incredibly fun. They look great. I think Holmes' script actually is really good. Sablon Glitz, I perhaps hadn't rated him as high as I should have. Mm. Watching him again, he gives a really good performance. And you are you are rooting for this character, even though he is a mass-murdering prick. <laughs> like, at one point, he just says, I know, we'll just seal off the, the city below and just gas them all. Mm. And he's, he's meant to be the likable rogue. <laughs> Uh, but no, it, 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 I, actually, I really have enjoyed those first three episodes. They, they, they've, they've, they've got their faults, but yeah, they, they look good. One thing that I have noticed, though, is that Colin is very relaxed and fun and entertaining in the actual story. He's very uncomfortable and not performing very well in the trial scenes. And I did notice that difference in his acting that I hadn't noticed before. But yeah, four episodes down, ten to go of this trial watch marathon uh episode five to watch this weekend brilliant and you know it is interesting you point out that in australia we didn't watch the classic series week to week i don't think i've watched doctor who week to week until new who came along because as you say it was on nightly there was that period where they were doing omnibus editions on weekends uh or we were watching videos yeah exactly it was on even when it was on at four thirty in the morning it was still five nights a week yeah and then when they had the uh, early 2000s repeats, they were four nights a week, I think, at six o'clock. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I might join you uh, in Trial Watch maybe when you get to um, Vervoids or something like that. <laughs> you're, you're avoiding Mind Warp? Yes. <laughs> you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll let you know when I get to episode nine. good Um Moving along, I've started a website, Dave. I think you've seen it. I haven't really been plugging it that much. It's policebox.net. It was kind of sentimental for me to to register this because back in the day when when websites when URLs I should say cost about a hundred bucks and you could only get them from ICANN or someone like that, I registered policebox.com and I thought oh I'll do great stuff with this, but it was the it was the mid nineties and I didn't know how to build a website to save me, <laughs> so I never did anything with it and it lapsed after twelve months and I never got it back and recently I noticed that policebox.net which had been taken for a long time too was actually free no um, none of these automated services had scooped it up and was trying to flog it and so I grabbed it and what I'm doing at policebox.net people and there's not really that much there but there's a bit there so I'm, I'm telling you now uh, to, to have a look if you're so inclined I am doing reviews of books uh, fiction and non-fiction comics audios basically any doctor who that wasn't on television every time i consume some of it i'm just going to write a a quick little review and throw it onto this site and hopefully over time it's going to become something interesting and be a little archive of all these non uh tv things so like big finish or you know the matt lucas autobiography that i listened to recently all that sort of stuff yeah it's a lovely little thing to do and a nice little sort of uh time capsule perhaps of your views it'll be interesting to see how they evolve yeah even now when i look back at stuff i wrote a month ago i think oh did i write that (laughs) shows you how busy i've been this past month oh that's good well yeah i hope hope more people check it out i I have had a look it's a very nice little site thank you very much uh finally i just wanted to mention that i've watched the pyramids of mars ah yeah what a great story it is a fantastic story and it was really interesting this was one of those stories that i put on while I was waiting for my uh, colleagues from the Goodies Pirate podcast to come round one afternoon to do some recording. 
And so, you know, people would sort of rock up as the story is going on. And the last person arrived just as we finished part three, and there was no way we were not watching part four. (laughs) And it's funny, we were all watching it, and several of us made the point, I know that episode four of Pyramids comes in for a bit of a kicking, and there's sort of this, it's great for three episodes, and then in episode four it falls down. I totally disagree. I love part four, and as a kid, that was by far my favourite episode. I loved all that stuff on Mars. Oh, really? Yeah, so I, I really like it now, and it, it, it's great. I mean, the performances are great. It looks good. I do find myself reflecting upon that, you know, well-known massive plot hole of why does Sutek have all these things with him in his in his jail? Mm. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe, you know, he sends Marcus out to go and make these things before he comes to England. And, <laughs> and I'm like, well, why would he go to England? Mm. <laughs> so mm. it doesn't work, and... um. Look, the ending, which again I thought was brilliant as a kid, I, I can see now is a little bit obvious. I think uh, Phil Sandifer, whose views I don't usually share, but on this occasion he makes a good point where he, he describes the ending as the Doctor hits the kill Sutex switch on the console. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but look, it, it, I think it's really, really cool. It's, it's great to watch some of these classic stories that we sometimes forget to watch. Oh, it's just an era where Doctor Who could do no wrong. And I sometimes think, is that just because of the age I first watched that and then I watch it as an adult? And I think, no, no, it's actually quite good. Have you watched Planet of Evil lately? Uh, I know where you're going with that thought, Dave. (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe about five years ago. I have watched it as an adult. Um, I think it looks very atmospheric, you know, for a studio. Wow. Yeah, that is true. It looks great. The ideas are great. I think the, the script, though, is a bit terrible. Um, but but I do I do enjoy some of the interaction between um, Vashinsky and uh, Salomar, you know, particularly <laughs> after he, he takes command and he's doing the come on Vashinsky, give an order, save the ship. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, look if you, uh, I mean once again if, if if Planet of Evil is your weak link in a season, that's a pretty good season. I think so. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But we need to move on to our main topic. We do, because this is a big one. We uh, told you all at the end of the last episode, we wanted to discuss this time around uh, monsters and enemies uh, and some other things that I've thrown into the list, Dave, when we get to them, (laughs) that New Who has brought back and did they do it successfully or not? Yeah, so we're just going to have a bit of a chat about this. Uh, We've made a bit of a list, but we're not going to sort of be going through in any kind of rigid uh, chronological order or anything. We just want to have a bit of a chat about what works and what doesn't. And so I think before we mention any, mm-hmm. what is it that you look for in a returning monster? I look for a returning monster, Dave, to resemble what they've been in the past so that they are categorically, you know, that monster. Uh, they haven't been changed too much. And that they also sort of operate in the same way as well if they were mute they suddenly can't speak or if they could speak they're suddenly not mute or you know that's a terrible example mm-hmm. but they've, they've, they've got to be basically the same thing but just updated in some way that sort of spiritual truism oh yeah it's got to be there otherwise why bother calling them whatever they are yeah i agree with that and i think the other thing is to look for a reason for them to be there that isn't just well we're bringing them back mm. I, I completely concur with that. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting is when I reflect back on, what, 13 years ago now, that excitement that came from the knowledge that, okay, 
the Daleks were coming back in season one. That was the big thing. And then it was, well, are we going to get something similar in season two? And will it be the Cybermen? Mm. And everybody's sort of gone, well, you know, that's a pretty obvious thing. But the BBC was doing that whole, you know, really uh, rigid covert. No, we're not confirming anything. We can't say anything. We're not saying the Cybermen are coming. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> as a result that um, my friends and I spent quite a lot of time simply referring, referring to them as the spoiler men. <laughs> we weren't allowed to talk about them. And even now, occasionally, the emails will talk about, hey, apparently there's going to be a spoiler men episode coming up. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that did become a, an annual thing, and it's still around a bit now. That And, you know, fans perhaps don't like to admit it, but we do get excited about the nostalgia of bringing back a, a monster from our childhood or a monster from a story we love. And there always is that anticipation. What's it going to be in season three? What's it going to be in season four? What's the new monster going to come back? And that was something that RTD particularly did. And as time has gone by, I really don't want to preempt any of these, but as time's gone by with some of them, it's almost been not so much, you know, are they coming back, but are they going to do them well? <laughs> yeah, and I, I was very interested to realise recently that when the Autons came back in Terror of the Autons, they were something like only the fifth monster to get a return in the series so far after eight years. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Dalek, Cybermen, Yeti, Ice Warriors. Yeah. And then the uh, the Autons. So in eight years, they were only the fifth monster to come back. Far out. Well, look, should we start with the Autons, perhaps? A very good place to start. They, of course, were the framing device for the first episode of the new series. And, look, we talk about hitting the nostalgia button with some of these. <laughs> My God, were they hitting the nostalgia button with the Autons. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, a lot of the audience wouldn't have seen them before. For us, for old fans, it was the nostalgia button. For new fans, though, I think it would have just been creepy and, and, and weird and maybe how people felt when they were watching the first Pertwee story. And that's the great thing about the way the Autons were done in Rose. I think they were really, really well done. As you say, if you don't know what they are, it's just this really creepy concept of shop window dummies moving and chasing you down. And those first scenes with Rose underneath the shop in the basement are really effectively done. But yeah, as fans, we know what it is. We've got that extra free song of excitement. And then you get the scene of them breaking through the shop windows. Again, for somebody who's new to the show, seeing Doctor Who for the first time, that's just an incredibly cool shot. For us, it's an incredibly cool shot, like they did in Spearhead from Space. <laughs> well, yeah, Dave, I too love the way they were brought back, and I'll, I'll bring up that scene, because in that scene, where they smash through the window and they're rampaging and there's taxis, you know, going all over the place and stuff's on fire, it's amazing, and it's what we thought happened in Spearhead, but never did. And the That's famous right. example there is that they didn't even break the glass of the shop window in Spearhead, even though for years later, everyone would swear that they broke the glass. Yeah, and finally being able to see that because we now have a budget that allows us to you know, break a pane of glass <laughs> was, was really cool. Exactly. So, so for me, uh, I just love seeing the scene that always happened in my head was now actually happening for real in the show. And although there were some comedic bits in that story, and I always mentioned the wheelie bin and stuff like that, oh, wow, that, that scene where they're just mowing people down in the street, there's real menace, there's real terror. It's, it's really scary. It's probably one of the scariest uh, scenes in New Who still, I think. Oh, I think so. And again, they were able to do stuff that they couldn't have done in the 70s or even the 90s, let's face it. For example, the Mickey 
Auton replica taking his head off. Mm. That that you know, I mean, you, could, you could imagine that being done with CSO or something back in the seventies. I mean, I can remember stuff like the Ghost of Motley Hall doing that, yeah. and it's terrible. Yeah, but they could do that really, really well. Or the Leisure yeah. Hive. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that brings me to, of course, the other monster that technically comes back in that same story, and that's the Nestines. Yes, and that is a very good example of taking a monster that was a really cool idea with a really bad execution mm-hmm. and just saying let's just do this as we kind of always wished it we could have done it and so that you know nesting consciousness creature that we see at the end of rose is considerably better than the limp tentacles that attack pertwee and spearhead <laughs> or the or the sort of glowing blurry lighty thing that descends upon jodrell bank in terror of the Autons. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I always think, though, although I get what's going on, I wonder how a casual viewer takes that, hearing about, you know, the nesting consciousness and anti-plastic and all this. It happens very quickly, and that's maybe where the episode falls down a bit for me. It's almost like a bridge too far to be introducing that. Look, it is, but without going back to sort of reviewing Rose, let's face it, that, that story is not about the Nestines or the Autons. No. They're just a framing device for Rose to meet the Doctor. Yeah, yeah, very true. So I would say, look, I love the way the Autons are brought back. I'm a bit ambivalent about the Nestine consciousness, um, although it looks quite okay. But yes, it's it's really a thumbs up for, for this monster coming back. Good. Shall we then go to what is probably my one really big thumbs down? It could be mine too if we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> uh, would there be spoiler men involved, Rob? <laughs> now that I've learned the term, Dave, yes, the spoiler men. Yeah, look, I don't know what the broad fandom consensus is on these, and let's face it, I don't really care. My opinions are mine. Mm. Um, and if you disagree with me, hopefully we prompt, we prompt some discussion. Yeah. I think that the Cybermen have been pretty universally terrible in the new series and to me they are the one really big fail for the new series under both davis and moffat i think they look terrible i really don't like the new modern look i think they're just they're just great big thick robot things i don't like the stomping mm. and i think they really have missed uh Sardman at their best which is that desperation to survive and that cybernization of, of people you know famously tomb of the cybermen one of their classic stories episode two doesn't end with a great big bunch of robots coming out of the tombs which is a wonderful visual shot it ends with the cyber controller walking up and saying you will be like us yeah even in the opening story and, and there's the there's a couple of points there that I, I can make but I'll, I'll make one and then you know hand over to you for a bit even in the opening story where they could have really done that body horror and you get a little bit of it with the the, the cyber that they sort of dismantle in the tunnels or the sewers, whatever they're doing. But that kind of ridiculous shot of all the lasers and the scissors coming down and doing stuff, I, I just thought it was so tacky. Mm. You, you've said they're a, a big negative for you, Rob. Why, why, why for you? They've just done extremely poorly in, in every outing, probably until World Enough and Time, and we'll get to that in a moment. Yes, we do. Because they've just come across as robots. Even in episodes where they've gone out of their way to show that they're chopping up people to put in the suits, and the famous one is uh, Yvonne Hartman from Torchwood, and you know, then she she cries that oily tear and all that nonsense. Yes. Yeah. Even showing that they're chopping up people to do this, they're still shown to walk in lockstep and to just have their catchphrase "delete, delete" because they're like a cut price Dalek saying "exterminate," and it's just 
No, no. I like Cybermen who can actually have a conversation. They're still logical, but they're people. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, they are people in suits. That's what they're meant to be. They're not bloody robots. And it's like these writers just, whoo, just goes over the top of their head. And they just write them as robots. I don't get that at all. How can you understand Doctor Who and not understand that? Yeah, look, I'm with you. And I would argue, and some will disagree, I would argue that all of the original costumes at least referenced in some way what the Cybermen were. If it was, if if only the chest unit itself, which is that replacement for the hearts and the lungs, the thing, you know, that, that, mm. that's there. Whether it is, of course, the 10th planet, you get the human hands and the voice. Whether it's with the 80s Cybermen, particularly in Earthshock, where you get the, you know, the, there's a remnant of flesh moving under the mouthpiece. Yeah. That's lacking from the new series Cybermen. And given the budget they have now, surely they could have done something really, really cool with that concept. Oh, you'd think so. To, to, to show that it's, it's, just a, it's just a shocking parody of a human, but it's still a human in there. Yeah. Oh, they could do something quite horrific. Some real body horror. But no. They're just robots, tin robots, that's all. And and they're, they're very competent tin robots, which maybe that's not the right word, but the Cybermen in the, in the original series were usually a pretty desperate bunch. They were always sort of on the edge of destruction. They are always trying to survive, with the one exception of Earthshock, where they said we'll finally put together a bit of an empire and they'd promptly go and get smashed by the humans anyway. <laughs> you know, the Cybermen are not this all-conquering all-powerful race and the final point that i want to make before we do mention uh, their final appearance which i think it does need its own separate mention is the fact that rtd felt the need to go to a parallel universe to recreate them yes i i kind of get what he was doing there but after that it's sort of like well hang on are the Simon we see now all from the parallel universe because the first couple of stories they were or are these the same Cybermen but different? Are they Cybermen and Cybusmen? I don't, I don't know. I think it kind of didn't wrap that whole thing up very well. Uh, and yeah, look, for me, the Cybermen have just never quite worked, with the exception of, as you rightly point out, uh, the Doctor Falls. Yeah, World Enough in Time and the Doctor Falls. But before we get yeah. to that, I'll just concur with you on the, on the whole Cybus Industries thing. It's the fan in me, I know, but I would just look at them and think, well, they're not real Cybermen. You know, they're, they're not from Mondas. They're, you know, and having the C for Cybus Industries is almost like C for Cyberman on their chest. And I was like, oh, that's just horrible. It's cheesy. It's awful. And and they did get rid of that. So I assume at that point we were meant to believe they were Mondasian Cybermen or derived from Mondas, uh, at least, eventually. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't until that Moffat story, which ripped off large chunks of spare parts, one of my favourite Big Finish stories, that they were they were back to being what they should be. It was just horrific. It was humans in suits. It was scary. When Bill woke up with the chest piece attached to her, I felt, I felt sick watching that, imagining what if that was me, you know, waking up and this, this metal thing's grafted into you and you can't get rid of it. Awful! that's you know 10 times worse than anything we saw in all the previous cyberman stories in new who put together yeah there's a great doctor who virgin missing adventure called the killing ground ah the colin baker one the colin baker one it's written by steve lyons and it's got two wonderful concepts in there the first is that it actually gives us a cybernization from somebody's point of view which is a iconic scene in those books the other is that it's set on a colony that has been conquered by the cybermen and the Cybermen come along every whatever the period is 
and harvest the young men to go and be turned into Cybermen. So mm. it, it is this idea of a human farm for the Cybermen. And they rebel by basically creating a suit of armor that has a computer that links into the brain, etc., etc., to fight back against the Cybermen. And suddenly you actually see these people sacrificing their humanity and effectively becoming Cybermen to fight the Cybermen. And that, again, is that reference to how desperate does humanity have to become to give up their humanity to survive. That's, that's what the Cybermen is all about. That's what the Killing Ground gets right. It's what some of the early stories get right, particularly in the 60s. And I think that's where World Enough and Time is going as well and gets right. Wouldn't that make a great two-parter? Mm, that would be amazing. Yeah. And when stories like this are out there and unknown to people, <laughs> why do we persist in writing such horrible stories sometimes? I don't get it, Dave. Uh, yes. So, look, it's good that they had that good appearance. I think everybody was really impressed by how they did that Mondaysian design. But even then, they kind of had to pull the rug at the end and go, no, these aren't actually from Mondays after all. This is just a whole different bunch of Simon that whatever. It's like, oh, you yeah. couldn't just give it to us, could you? You just had to take that little bit at the end. Yeah, oh, I know, I know. But we've got to move on. And, and look, listeners, I please, if you disagree with us, tell us why we've why the Simon are great, why you love the Simon in the new series. I'd love to hear. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just say, the Cybermen are still my favourite Doctor Who villain. I just don't like how they've been done in the new series. Interesting. Mm. Now, we can't talk Cybermen without talking uh, about the Daleks as well, obviously being the two big Doctor Who baddies. Daleks? Tell me more. <laughs> nice one. I'm going to say... Very simply, aside from the huge misstep in victory of the Daleks that even Stephen Moffat thinks was pretty shit, um, I think that, that quote he made in that interview on YouTube recently was like, you know, we made them big. What what, what were we doing? <laughs> That's just crazy. <laughs> They're not meant to be like that. Um, so even Moffat thought that was shit. Uh, aside from that, they've been done very well, I think, in terms of the way they look. They were updated, they were recolored, but they still look like Daleks. They look tough, they look mean, they look like they could stand their ground on a battlefield. Uh, and also in terms of their attitudes, they, they were still Daleks. They weren't trying to do something new. Or maybe apart from that Daleks in Manhattan thing, but, you know, <laughs> the least said about that, the better. Yeah, and we're not looking at the stories, we're looking at the actual monsters themselves. Yeah. I agree. The, the, the Daleks have been absolutely phenomenally, groundbreakingly brilliant in the new series. They are one of the best things about the entire new series. That I think, without a doubt, they've, they've brought them back. As you said, the design is very true to the original, whilst being better than the original whilst doing things that the original couldn't do back on the old budgets. Stuff like that moment in Dalek where suddenly the midsection swivels around and takes a shot and then swivels back. Yeah. Or the way that it floats up about, you know, just... And I remember watching Dalek thinking, how cool is this? Suddenly it's doing all the things production teams would have done if they'd had the money and the technical know-how. Mm. At the same time, you know, when I think about what's great about the Daleks in the original series, it is that absolute terror that they are going to be successful you know when you have that moment in Dalek's master plan where one of them says one Dalek is capable of exterminating all you believe that yeah and again when Eccleston says this Dalek can wipe out this entire city overnight you believe that mm. it's the the utter callousness of them uh, I, I, I've said before my favourite Dalek story is still Dalek Invasion of Earth there are moments in that of just utter soullessness utter heartlessness there's 
one very memorable scene where uh, Susan and David are hiding and they can hear a man being chased by the Daleks. You don't, you don't see any of it, but you just hear him. Clearly, he's sort of been caught. And he's just going, no, you can't. You've killed them, my wife, my kids. You've done... And then he's shot. Mm. And it's a really grim moment. And again, you see that in a moment of rare violence, particularly against kids in Stolen Earth. There's that family that comes out to protest the Daleks. Yes. And they're sort of shouting at them and then they throw a brick at him or something. And then the, the mother, the father and the kid go inside. And then the Daleks destroy the house. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably including the mother, the father and the kid. Yeah. Now that that's that's heavy. Yeah. And the Daleks let you do that. Oh, absolutely. And and they've just been so well done. You know, it's it, it's something I sort of feared, you know, what would they be like when they came back? But they just nailed it. And although there have been a few wishy-washy stories, I know we're not talking about specific stories, just the way they are in general, just great. Yeah, absolutely. The one fault they had, and I think that this is a victim of their success in many ways and not realising how quickly the, the show would take off and how long it would be. I mentioned this when we did our RTV versus Moffat thing, is that idea of, okay, in Dalek you've got the last Dalek ever in the universe. <laughs> and then a few episodes later you've got oh, the other last Dalek ever in the universe, but they've been wiped out now. And then you've got, oh, and here are the three other Daleks that are left in the universe. Oh, we've wiped them out. Oh, there's the one surviving Dalek from that. As I say, Victory of the Daleks is a poor story in many ways, but at least at the end of it, they're just like, no, the Daleks are back. We don't have to have an excuse to bring them back every time. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, Moving along, here's here's a more obscure character, Dave. I'm going to throw up the great intelligence yeah um, I, I don't know what, I, I really don't know what my opinion is on this one and I'm oh I'm really gonna, I was going to let you have the first go <laughs> no I'm going to cheat here and I'll let you have the first go okay alright this is a character I really like probably based on reading target novels back in the day unfortunately in New Who and I really love Richard E. Grant let me say that up front too the character just doesn't do it for me it, on screen, it's left me cold. Um, it feels uninteresting, maybe not even threatening, which is weird. Even when it's threatening big stuff, like, oh, Doctor, I'm going to, you know, destroy your timeline and all that. Like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> it's, mm. it's a character I think I really like, again, based on reading Target novels and what had gone back in the, in the 60s and so on. But it just hasn't warmed for me at all in New Who. It's an interesting concept because I don't have the same particular fond memories of the Great Intelligence that you do. I certainly remember the Yeti very well, or at least the two episodes that we had. I do remember Padma Sambhava's voice performance in the audio tapes we had of uh, The Abominable Snowman as being very effective, but I don't really remember him. And I suspect that if ever we get part six of The Abominable Snowman back we will see that it is just another BBC foam machine monster. I think that, unfortunately, this is an occasion when my opinion is heavily tainted by the fact I don't enjoy the episodes that he appeared in. I'm just not sure what he's for. Mm, yeah, I, I guess I liked the the character because it's just different. It's not an army of Daleks or Cybermen. It's not Auton smashing down shop windows. It's just something more intangible <laughs> you know it's it's 
it's a different kind of character. I, I think that's what, why I like it. But as I say, even loving Richard E. Grant doesn't save it for me. And you're right, it could actually just be the stories. And that just plays too much on my mind. Yeah, I, I still don't know what the great intelligence wants. You know, if I if I could sound a little bit like an artist, what's its motivation? <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Uh, I'm going to mention one on this topic that I also really struggle to decide which column to put it in. Yeah. And that's the Sontarant. Ah, okay. Now, I've got a couple of problems when it comes to deciding whether this was well done or not. One of them is that they weren't all that well done several times in the classic series. <laughs> you know, good as, point. as good as the Time Warrior is and Lynx was, as good as Star was in Sontaran Experiment. Look, I quite like Invasion of Time, but the Sontarans are not great in that. Mm. And they are terrible in The Two Doctors. Yeah. So when you're judging whether they've done a good job at bringing them back, you almost have to move the curve and say, well, it wouldn't be hard to do it better than the two doctors did. Yeah, look, that's true. But what New Who's done is just change them quite remarkably, I think. You know, to be very small and very comedic. I just find them absolutely stupid in New Who. I get that they're doing it probably for the kids, but why not just make a jokey new race if you're doing something for the kids and you want it to be like this? You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't bring back this classic enemy, you know, which I, I know Two Doctors is terrible. I, I, I take that fully on board. But they are still a classic enemy and, and, and on paper they read really scary and interesting and, and such, this clone race of warriors. And, you know, uh, why turn them into a, a tiny comedic race, you know, like jockeys? In, in suits. Just ugh, horrible. So this brings me to my second difficulty. Rob, I'll ask you, did you feel this way at the end of Sontaran Stratagem Poison Sky? Or is it something that developed afterwards? I okay, I didn't feel this strongly at the end of Sontaran Stratagem and Poison Sky. I I did note though that they were small and comedic in that story and it wasn't sitting great with me. But it got worse as time went on, and especially with Strax. Okay, so that's interesting. I'm going to disagree with you, because I quite enjoyed... In fact, I really enjoyed the way they were brought back in the, that first uh, two-parter in okay. Season 4. And, you know, the, they were the big returning monster for Season 4. I thought that they were well done. I, I, I liked the size difference, because it did make them that little bit different, that little bit alien. They weren't just men in rubber costumes... Okay, they were many rubber costumes, but they, they, they used CGI to make them smaller and look like they weren't. And that, I think, added to the alienness. I like, though, the way that they were extremely offensive. They were extremely effective. When the Sontarans do decide to take on UNIT, they are very, very successful at it. Hmm. The way the Sontarans manipulate... Uh, what's, what's the kid's name? Radigan? Ah, uh, I think so, yes. Yeah, Radigan, I think it is. The way they manipulate him and then betray him I think was very, very good. And that's the sort of thing that we had seen from Lynx and Steyr. So I actually thought that in that returning adventure, even though the adventure had some some faults in itself, I did enjoy them. Asterisk, apart from the dancing. <laughs> right, yep. Fair call, fair call. But yes, I do agree though. I struggle to think of them being used well since then. And look, Strax is probably the ultimate fandom divider. You either love him or hate him. I think our records are, our views are very much on the record. 
and and I, I don't like him. I, I think he is he is terrible. So yeah, I can't definitively say they were good or bad on the return because there were really good aspects that some Tarrant Stratagem I think is better than Invasion of Time or Two Doctors, but they also had weak ones. So uh, new, new, nuance. Mm, yeah, yeah. Look, I I just can't get past images in my head of, of a big Sontar and you know fighting with Tom Baker, you know, who is a big man himself, and you know. Ah, to just turn them into these little weird things. I, I, I just don't get it, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, interestingly, so a mixed mark from uh, from the team on this one. Mm, yeah, very much so, it seems. But I should mention as well, uh, one appearance I really like the Sontarans in is Shakedown. Ah, okay. It was a VHS tape that came out. Uh, it was written by Terence Dix, starred Jan Chappell... Uh, Caroline Ford, Sophie Aldred, Brian Croucher, uh, Michael Wisher, um, and it was subtitled Return of the Sontarans. It was a direct-to-video sort of fan-made movie, although, you know, it had very big names in it for a fan-made movie, in about 1994, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And the Sontarans in that are really, really good. And in that one, there is a very serious commander Sontaran, and there is a comedy relief sidekick Sontaran. <laughs> he's actually done really well um, I, I, I really enjoy Shakedown and that was a great appearance by the Sontarans so you get the best of both worlds there you kind of do there yeah and, and Terence Dix did turn that into a new adventure as well which was a very good appearance by them as indeed is Lords of the Storm the missing adventure they appeared in with Davo written by David A. McGinty yeah no that, that's one I, I own and have yet to read look for it on policebox.net folks in uh, 10 years time I'll throw up another monster dave from the 70s uh similar to the sontarans perhaps insofar as they've come back and they were changed uh, fairly dramatically it's the silurians yes do you want to have first go on this one i find it very hard to judge this i said earlier in the episode and i've said it many times the silurians is my favorite doctor who story they were brought back in warriors of the deep which i think is an underrated story but the depiction of the silurians there was appallingly bad I didn't like their appearance in New Who. I mm-hmm. thought it kind of missed the point and it was kind of retreading. I didn't like the design either. I thought that it removed a large amount of that alienness from them. They are meant to be lizard creatures. They're meant to be monsters. So giving them that sort of Star Trek Voyager makeup, and it is, it's really, really similar to the makeup and the dinosaur descendants in uh, the Voyager episode Distant Origin. It's almost exactly the same. Um, I I didn't like that. I don't appreciate the argument that it allows them to be more of a character in the same way that the Draconians famously were better because you could see the eyes and the mouth and the masks or the half masks uh, allowed you to see more emotion. I get that that is an advantage the new Silurians have. Mm. But I still err on the favour of no, make them monsters, make them inhuman, make them different. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't, don't have the same dislike for this one as I do the Cybermen, but I don't think they did it as well as they could have. Let me, let me ask you: when you were seeing um, pre-publicity photos of them, and they had the masks on, and they yes. looked more alien, did you assume that that's just what they'd be like? I did, and I thought they looked brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, based on what you were saying there, I thought, yeah, you probably would have liked that more if it had just stayed that way. Yeah, what about you, Rob? 
I initially thought it was clever that they had a mask on because I was taken in. I thought that's what they look like. And then, oh, the mask comes off. But over time, I thought, oh, it's just a human in makeup. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not really a lizard. Yeah. And the other thing that they're missing is the third eye. Yes. Now, I can remember as a kid, one of the things about the Silurians was that they were terrifying because they had that power. They just had to look at you and zap you and you were dead. Or they could melt rock by staring at it. Mm. You know, I love that thing in the Silurians. And it, it obviously, you know, is missing in Warriors of the Deep and that's really unfortunate. They do bring it back when they come back in the novels. I mean, two of my favourite virgin books, Blood Heat and... Scales of Injustice. Yes. Are both brilliant books that really do the Silurians justice. And I don't know why that wasn't brought back when they brought them back here. Yeah, again, because like I was saying earlier, these stories are known. You know, people writing the show would have known of those books, would have known of those stories. And whether they were going to to, uh, do an adaption of those books or not, or just use them as some sort of uh, just a basis for the stories... Why, why not go in that direction? Why, why reinvent the wheel when it's already been invented? And done so well. I, look, I agree. I do give the Solarines a much better mark than I do the Cybermen because I think the intent is good. And I do appreciate the rationale for making them people in makeup because it, it does allow for more character and emotion. So I, I do think it is a valid and reasonable and some might argue appropriate creative choice. It's just not the one I would have gone for. Similar to Strax popping up and maybe spoiling things for the Sontarans, do you think the return of Madame Vastra again and again sort of did something to how you think about Silurians? Because I think it did for me. Uh, no, not to the same extent, because I felt so strongly after watching uh, Hungry Earth. Uh, no, no, it, it didn't. Um, okay. Plus, I, I kind of had now developed this self-defense mechanism where I instantly remove any Madame Vastra scenes from my mind. <laughs> which means that she doesn't influence my opinion. Very wise. Um, let's get back in time from the 70s to the 60s and talk Ice Warriors, Dave. Yeah, these are kind of cool, aren't they? I've, I've long liked the Ice Warriors in terms of the 60s creation because, gosh, uh, when would Seeds of Death have come out on VHS, Dave? I reckon it was definitely out by about 1990. It might even have been a year or two earlier. I'm thinking maybe a year or two earlier because I have vivid memories of borrowing that from the the local library. And it, it was one of the first black and whites I watched properly. Not, not, not a wonky copy in some fan's bedroom, but an actual, you know, nice copy. And I thought, oh this is great and and it gave me a real appreciation for the ice warriors i think it's a much better story for example than the ice warriors oh i totally agree it would have been the third 60s story that i saw as you say as a proper proper quality story there was the crotons and the mind robber which were screened here in 1986 repeats and then that vhs came out and yeah like like you you know it was a a regularly borrowed copy from the uh, the video library and, and yeah, that, that is a really good story. I love it. I love the way the Ice Warriors look, both in the old and the new series. Both of them have captured that that way they just sort of tower over you. They have that nobility about them, but also that power about them, which Slara and Seeds of Death does really, really well. And even in a weak story, and look, Monster of Peladon is a very bad story. I, you know, it's one of the worst couple of Purpley stories, in my opinion. But even in that, Azixir himself 
is a really good character and looks great. I I don't disagree with anything you've just said, but 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 when we get to the new series and we have this reveal that they're little guys in suits, ah! Yeah, I didn't mind it. I really I. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I thought that it was an interesting new take. Again, it's not the creative choice I personally would have made. But in some ways, I kind of liked it for doing that slightly different creative choice. And I must admit, as a kid, I never assumed that the Ice Warriors were in armor or costumes. I just thought that's what they looked like. That that was what an Ice Warrior was. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, okay, you kind of realize later that clearly they are wearing helmets and, and, and body armor of some sort, so... Yeah, what's going to be underneath is a is an interesting thing. I mean, and, and I'm referencing the New Adventures here a lot because they did bring these monsters back a lot, but the New Adventure Legacy by Gary Russell, one of the big bits of pre-publicity of that was that there was going to be a scene where a Ice Lord took his helmet off and how would Gary Russell describe it and everything, and that was kind of a big deal. And so I get that if you're going to do them, you kind of have to do that scene. Uh, like, you can't not do that scene. And would I have necessarily done it that way? I, I don't know, but I thought it was a perfectly interesting and well-executed decision. Mm. For me, it just seemed like Mark Gatiss was trying to add his own ideas to this well-established mythology and a classic monster, and he was just trying to put his stamp on it. Maybe it's just because I, you know, I, I get so upset with some Mark Gatiss stories that I see mm. them so negatively. And, and I get that it was creepy when the little creature popped out of the suit and it was crawling around, you know, above their heads and all that. I get it. I do get it. It was like a, a horror sort of thing. But uh, it just spoils it for me. I, I just like to think of them like Sontarans as just big, buffy blokes who just, you know, slap you around the head a bit. You know, <laughs> not, not, not some weedy little creature that's hiding in a big suit. Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I just don't feel that way. I actually disagree with you. I think that they kind of had to do it. I think if you brought the Ice Warriors back as these creatures in armour and not show what's under the armour, I think that would have been a bit of a cheat for a modern audience. So I think it had to be done. And I, I look, uh, yeah, I may not have made them quite as weedy as they did, but that idea of them being slightly more agile, nimble and hiding in the shadows worked quite well i i had a bigger problem with the lack of clamps frankly mm, no fair enough but in, but in general though i think they looked they looked good they look great even without the clamps i think you know they look good i, I don't want to seem too negative on them i think the, the look of them and their attitude has all been great since they came back i just didn't like the the size of the monster inside that's my only beef well if that's your only beef that's not a bad thing and we've neglected of course to mention empress of mars where again i thought they looked really good oh yeah absolutely and and the empress herself looked really fantastic a great new take on on them yeah a couple of moments of uh acting decisions that maybe were ah, the best from her but yes <laughs> that's that's neither here nor there yeah was was that the one i was comparing to the wicked witch of the west it, it was yes fly my pretties yeah yeah <laughs> All so right. look, we've 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 covered most of the big ones. There's probably one big one we need to do. Yeah, I can think of at least one. Well, I'm thinking Zygons. I was thinking Zygon too. Yes. Uh, I've <laughs> I've gone first to the last couple, Rob. I think it's your turn. What do you think of the Zygons, which, of course, were the monster for the 50th anniversary, and have since come back in their own two-parter. 
Yeah, look, it's interesting, Dave, because we're not trying to concentrate on episodes per se, but I will say I wasn't entirely sold on them in that 50th special. I, I, I just didn't quite like how they were done, and they were a bit of an also ran in the 50th anniversary special. I know they were there, but they weren't really the point of the story. Mm-hmm. What I can say is, like Ice Warriors, they look good, and they act like Zygons, and that's really cool, and I think they're, they're a decent enemy and they've been brought back well but in terms of the stories they've been in i haven't been entirely sold so hmm, it's hard for me to sort of say much more about them actually look i go back to what i said right at the start of this discussion topic what is it that i'm looking for in a monster that's been brought back Hmm. i'm looking for them to be true spiritually to what they uh what they were in the classic series zygons definitely are, are that i think they are similarly motivated they look similar they act similar and are they doing something with it? Yes. The Zygon's main shtick is that they can look like humans. They can do that whole transformation thing. And they do that really, really well in all the episodes they're in. And they also you know, look a little bit better than they did. Not that they didn't look great in Terror of the Zygons. That's a design that really stands up well. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it's a big tick for the Zygons from me. Uh, my only criticism is that we haven't seen the Scarrison yet. <laughs> oh there's still time uh yeah look look I, I broadly agree i think they look good they act well and if they're put into a really great story i'll have no problem with them at all yes uh look i mean i have big problems with zygon invasion inversion i think the politics in that is very very warped i think the doctor is not just problematic he's overtly racist in some of those moments mm. uh, and that is a big problem for me but that's not the zygon's fault um, Dave, I've got a few sort of oddball choices on my list, but I've also got a, a semi-serious one I wanted to mention too. It's not quite a returning monster. In New Who, Dave, we've almost had the Nymon. Ah, we did too. In the God Complex, we had a, a Minotaur sort of species that was regarded as sort of a cousin of the Nymon. So I'm just going to say it was a Nymon. <laughs> For the sake of this argument. And wasn't there something as well in the Time Heist episode? Oh, yeah, what was that? That was very Nymonish as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I've only watched that once. Although (laughs) although I guess guess this is the interesting point. The Nymon are obviously a derivative of the Minotaur. Yes. So because that is such a classic image in human literature, I mean, you know, let's face it, Doctor Who's done some variation of the Minotaur in at least three stories I can think of in the classic years and it's therefore kind of inevitable that there will be some derivative of it as well in the new series yeah and here's an example of it's because it's a story I really really love that I think I, I like what they did here with the monster you know this dying monster I thought oh this is beautiful why can't it just be a Nymon why can't it be a Nymon Dave I guess because if they had made it a Nymon with the same abilities and powers and influences that the, the creature in the god complex had would you be sitting here saying that it wasn't spiritually true to the original Nymon oh I don't know. I know um, Horns and Nymon has its fans out there. They like it because it's so horrible. But I don't really rate it. So I, because I really like the God Complex, I'd probably say it was better <laughs> than the original Nymon. <laughs> you see, I really like the Horns of Nymon. Look, okay, it's it's got some massive, massive flaws. And some of it is very silly. But it's very fun to watch. But part three 
where Romana goes to Krinoth mm-hmm. and actually sees something very rare in Doctor Who. She sees a world where the alien invasion has succeeded. Yeah. And that's actually quite a terrifying concept. And the nine one in that part are actually quite scary, I think. And that's them at their best. Mm. So I, I actually give the nine one big a big plus in that story. Maybe we need to see the nine one back properly. I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that at all, actually. You mentioned you had a couple of other minor ones to throw at me. I do. So let let's just rattle through these quickly. Werewolves, Dave. Greater show in the galaxy had werewolves, and of course we had a werewolf in Tooth and Claw. I like them in both. Interesting. Again, we're we're mining a classic uh, image of human literature. Yeah. And so it's inevitable that both series would do them. Interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I remember not being very keen on the werewolf in Greater Show in the Galaxy. I think that what he's done in Tooth and Claw is done very well. It is very, very hard to do werewolves well. Even shows with really good budgets struggle to do werewolves particularly well. I mean, Buffy, mm. uh, you know, the, mm. the, the script around uh, the werewolf characters in that were really, really good. The execution, not so much. Uh, even Teen Wolf, which was a bit of a guilty pleasure series of mine while it was on, even in that, with all the makeup and everything they had, there were moments where the werewolves did look pretty terrible. And so I guess going down that concept of just making them as close to a wolf as possible actually works best. I think it was a very wise decision Tooth and Claw made there. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say, wasn't there also one of these universal horror movies in the past few years? Didn't they do a Wolfman one or something like that? Oh, not sure about that. And it might have just like sunk and died a death, which is maybe why you can't think yeah. of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are hard to do. But yeah, that was just a just a returning one. I thought, I kind of like Tooth and Claw. I kind of like what they did there. I'll just throw it in for fun. Fair enough. In a similar vein, Dave, we've also had the Macrobac in a in a tiny sort of way. Yeah, for about 13 seconds. <laughs> I thought that was a lovely little reference that, again, fans of the show who know what the Macra are and who, like me, particularly love the Macra Terror, I think it's a great story. It was a lovely little moment to go, oh, yeah, they're Macra. Anybody who's watching for the first time will just think it's the name for a monster the Doctor's just, you know, discovered then. So, yeah, really well done. Um, they looked not bad for the, you know, few seconds of them jumping out of the gas that you saw. <laughs> they, they, what, they'd been driven insane or something, hadn't they? They were, they were just like crazy feral macra. They were, they were de-evolved macra or something, yes. That's it, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> now I've got two really crazy ones, Dave. Um, not quite fitting the, uh, the status of monster, but they are returning from the classic series and they could be an enemy in some ways. How about the Sisterhood of Khan? Is that a stretch? Uh, that is a stretch. I don't think they're really a monster, are they? They could be monstrous. <laughs> oh, look, I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, I thought what they did was pretty pretty nice. It was pretty good. Yeah, what 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 more can you say? I mean, I would have liked a little bit more hissing. You know, a little bit more sacred flame. Or, you know, the... Yes. Um, yes. A bit more of that, but no, they were fine. Oh, fine. Okay. And finally, Dave, the ultimate monster who have come back in New Who, the Time Lords. Oh, my goodness. There's a whole podcast in that. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to pass on that one. I I don't think I can say that in under an hour. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll I'll say that um, 
I haven't been too impressed with how the Time Lords have been brought back, but maybe you're right. That Maybe that is its, its own episode. If I was giving literally my one-sentence view, it would be that they are less impressive than I think they could be, but that would be a massively unfair simplification. All right, well, that wraps up the monsters that New Who have brought back. Dave, I think you might have something else up your sleeve, though, before we move on. Well, I've been thinking about some classic series monsters that I would like them to bring back. Hmm. Now, I've thought about it, and one thing I'm really keen on is making sure that I'm not just trying to bring a story back. So, for example, you sit there and go, wouldn't it be great to have another story with the crinoids or the robots of death? And then you realise... Actually, no, it probably wouldn't be. Any sequel to those would probably be probably be pretty terrible because yeah. they work so well in one story. That's a classic story. But, you know, the crinoids aren't actually that interesting a monster. No. Although I must say the, the idea of seeing a CGI crinoid would be pretty cool. <laughs> but look, I think the Krals definitely deserve a comeback. Yeah, good. Uh, the Zabi, I would love to see Vortus done with a modern budget. Yeah. The Crotons. Okay, yep, yep. Uh, we've done the Silurians. Where are the Sea Devils? Yeah, really good point. And can they come back in the samurai armor? No, no. I want, <laughs> I want fishnets. I love the samurai oh, armor, no, Dave. I want the fishnets. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Uh, the Cheetah People. Yeah, good one. Although we have had Cat People. That's sort of similar. Oh, that is true. That is true. Uh, I think, again, if you're going to bring the Sontarans back, you need to do the Rutans. Yeah, fair. And finally, we need Pteroleptals. Oh, now that would be good. Could you imagine modern budget pteroleptals? Yeah, now that that would be really nice. There's so much more you can do there. Like you say, some stories, there's nowhere else to go. You know, after Robots of Death, what do you do? Yeah. Well, I guess there were those novels that weren't too bad, like Corpse Marker, but, <laughs> but putting the, those they were, aside... They were less about the robots than they were about the society, and that, that's, the, that's the point, I guess. Yeah, very, very true. But a pteroleptal, yeah, I think you could do something there. All right, Invasion of the Pteroleptals. Let's put a submission into Chibnall. <laughs> Chivers, listen up. Now, Dave, we have got some feedback on this topic as well. Shall we rattle through this? Uh, let's do this. Though. And thank you once again to everybody who's sent us feedback or engaged with us on Twitter or whatever. We really appreciate it. Um, as we've said before, we don't give our views because we think we're you know right. We, we give them to hopefully prompt some thought and discussion, and we're very happy when we do. Yeah, absolutely. So on Twitter, we threw out the question, you know, what... Classic monsters, do you think New Who's done well? Which ones do you think have done badly? So that, that's the question people are basically asking. And Nick Kirby, who tweets at Uncle Corky, says, Frankly, none of them were well handled, being rolled out as generic monsters of the week. The redesigns diminish them too, clearly being done to make it easier to manufacture action figures. Oh, that's a cynical one. Look, it's a perfectly reasonable view. Um, I, I, would, I would say that it's very hard to argue the Daleks weren't done well, but... Hey, Nick thinks that way, and yeah, interesting mm. to hear. Jim Cameron from the Crinoid Podcast has written in. Hello, Jim. Yes, good to hear from you. He says, Davros and the Mondaysian Cybermen have been the most successful for me. Julian Bleach rivals Michael Wisher for the best interpretation, and the Series 10 finale was the cyber origin story we'd been waiting for. The Cybermen themselves being both terrifying and tragic. Wonderful stuff. The rest I could have lived without, to be honest. The Ice Warriors still work well, but the skinny Martian in the shell manages to bastardise both the Daleks and the Cybermen concepts. Yes, Jim. Yes. <laughs> the Daleks themselves suffer from diminishing returns, the Sontarans look like plastic children, and the Silurians <laughs> look too generic. Although the idea is still sci-fi gold, as is the Autons. 
yeah. who are handled well by New Who. The Masters have been too self-consciously wacky for my tastes, but the Macra cameo was fun and unexpected. Overall, though, unless the story absolutely demands it and the adversary is a perfect fit, I would rather see new foes than returning ones, probably because no rehash will ever match what I experienced as a child. Nostalgia always wins, and the show needs to keep moving forwards. Yeah, great points there. It is, and it makes me wonder, in 20 or 30 years' time when we have new New Who coming out, having mm. been revived again, what will be the New Who original monsters that everyone will be begging for them to bring back in New New Who? Oh, angels, perhaps? That would be the, the number one pick. I wonder what the others would be. Tweet us, let us know what you think, listeners. Yeah, good question. Um, very Pete Lambert, who tweets at a Twitter handle I love, Professor Quitermass, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, who ate all the pies. Um, they ruined the macra, and he's done a sad face, sad face, and sad face. Actually, that could be an angry face, angry face, angry face there, Dave. He's certainly not happy. Yeah, it looks very uh, upset. Yeah, they, they ruined the macra. J.R. Southall from the Blue Box podcast sent us a tweet, and he says... I think they've all been treated well enough, frankly. Not one has been brought back without a great deal of thought about the proper way to do it. And in many cases, the past has been improved upon significantly by more thinking about how these species would actually function. I think that is true. I think there are a lot of very good intents and good thought in everyone they've brought back. Sometimes I'm not sure the execution works for me, but generally speaking, I can see why they've done what they've done. And it's been, at worst, a good idea at the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I can get behind that. With maybe the exception of the Cybermen, you know, uh, until we got to that final story where we see them being created out of necessity, I just don't get them. I, yeah. I just don't get them at all, that, that robotic sort of vibe. And Is that really phrase. how they'd function? Yeah. Why oh, do they just... need to have a catchphrase? Because Daleks have them, Dave. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Horrible. And finally, Mike Solko has written us a letter. We'll read the first half of it in a minute, but the second half of it deals with this topic. So I'll read the second half first, if that makes any sense. On to the topic, classic monsters that have been a mixed bag and knew who. Mike says, The Daleks alone have had stories from awful to excellent. The good, Mondassi and Cybermen were wonderfully creepy. The Zygons have been given a fair amount of depth compared to their single appearance in the past. New Series 1 Daleks made them feel like genuine threats again. The Monoids look better than ever in Smith's finale. They're not so good. Cybermen have been dreadful in nearly every story. The new design looks way too robotic. Giving an Auton human features and expression derailed their effectiveness. The same goes for Silurians. What needs to come back? Effects are finally up to a point where the Monoptera could live up to their concept, Dave. Yes! <laughs> the Mara could also be brilliant if they can get the right approval from Kate Bush. <laughs> and let's see more Ogre. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to hearing all of your thoughts from Mike Solko. What a wonderful set of thoughts. And yes, the Ogre. Mm. And, you know, mate, we could, we could have Cesare of Diplos back as well. And the, and the Megara. <laughs> oh, so much good stuff. And don't forget, I've been to the Stones of Blood. I've seen the Ogre. They are, they are quite scary. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you've told me that story. It's, it's, uh, it's somewhere I'd like to go myself one day. But that's all our feedback on, on this topic. Um, thank you so much, Reverend, for writing in. I've had a lot of fun discussing it, to be honest with you, Dave. Look, I have as well. Monsters are one of those things that really defines Doctor Who. If you ask the general public 
what they remembered from Doctor Who. It's generally not the time travel or the characters or anything. It is the monsters. Mm. Thank you to everyone who talked to us about that. We also have, as I just mentioned, a, uh, a more mail from Mike Solko and also one from uh, your Blake 7 podcast partner, Dave. Uh, we do, we do. Uh, so shall I continue with uh, Mike's email? Yeah, let's continue with Mike's email now that we're into our actual mailbag. So he starts in the middle with, Hello, Robin Dave. <laughs> yes. Your Fantasy Who productions with a new to Who game brought forth many interesting ideas on how to approach Who and how to make another huge leap like we experienced in 2005. I feel like you all owe Dave some homework on the episode titles and synopses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you did really go to town on those. I, I enjoyed that, I did. And for, for anyone who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, our previous episode, previous monthly episode, we did Fantasy Doctor Who with the new to Who podcast team. Yes, worth checking out. We had a lot of fun doing that. Mm. Mike continues, I'll keep my take brief and no big surprise. We can all agree who on TV has gotten dull, so it's time to bring it back as a series of 14 30-minute radio plays broadcast every Sunday evening on BBC Radio 4. There will be a mix of three two-parters, two three-parters, and a single episode to open and close the series. Alexander Siddig would be the Doctor, blending a bit of Davison and McGann with a dash of Season 7 Pertwee. Mm. That's, of course, Dr. Bashir from Deep Space Nine. That's right. Yes. His initial story would be set in 1999 Hong Kong, where he would pick up two companions, a 40-something male reporter from the UK and a 30-something female unit officer undercover on an assignment. The, the Rani would appear twice over the season, first as an antagonist and then as a third party in the story. Bringing her in on audio would allow for the disguise gimmick to work much better. The series would end with the unit officer killing an alien threatening the Earth after the Doctor has defused the situation. She is banished from the TARDIS, but don't worry, she'll be back again next season. Well, that's a season I want to see made. Absolutely. I'm I'm all over this. I mean, on radio, that's quite interesting. That's something we didn't discuss in our... Um in our episode, Dave. Yeah, and Alexander City, uh, yeah, really good call. I can see that. Da- a dash, a bit of Davison and McGann. Well, that's how I saw Samuel Barnett playing my mm. doctor. So I'm, I'm all over that with a dash of season seven Pertwee. I guess what what's that? A bit bit arrogant, perhaps. A little bit arrogant. Yeah, that, that's bit, interesting. Bit bit pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some mm. good thoughts there, Mike. I hope we've inspired a few others people to think about their fantasy Doctor Who's. I still would love to hear some of your picks to play the Doctor as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to finish out the mailbag this time, uh, Richard Nolan has written in, your your co-host from uh, the Blake 7 podcast, Dave, and he's talking about yet another episode we put out just recently, and that was that strange little chat we did when we met up in Sydney and we just talked about our fandom. You know, while, while the new to Who guys were off getting changed for dinner and such, we just sat down, plonked the mic down, and just started chatting. And about an hour and a half later, we had something in the can. I've had a few nice bits of feedback about that, actually. Oh, that's good. I'm pleased. Yeah. And here's Richards. He says, Hello, Rob and Dave. Very much enjoyed your recent discussion about fandom in the old days. Great to reminisce along with you both. Some of it seems strangely familiar. Ha ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get actively involved in fandom until the 90s, although I'd lurked for a few years prior to that, attending the occasional Doctor Who Club of Victoria event as far back as 1987. In fact, we have worked out... 
that there was a meeting in 1987 where myself, Richard, and Mark from 42 to Doomsday were all at, and none of us knew each other at the time. No way. But we've all worked out we were at that particular meeting. Wow. (laughs) Richard continues... My memories of the early to mid-90s were very much a period of optimism about the return of the series, but also a time when fans were starting to turn more professional with the emergence of enterprises such as BBV, The Frame, and others which paved the way for the likes of Big Finish and Telos near the end of the decade. As you discussed, the later 90s were a bit of a wasteland as the telemovie faded into the distance and fan interest seemed to wane. The culmination of my time in fandom was overseeing the Time Storm convention in late 97, but it was also the beginning of the end, and after abandoning an attempt at Time Storm 2, I really checked out of Doctor Who fandom a year or so later. And that, Dave, was the uh, the convention you were talking about, I believe, on that episode. That's right, yes. Richard continues, My main takeaways were a lot of happy memories and great friends that I made. Time has moved on, and fandom now is very different and very much for the younger generation. Still, as Dave and I said of our time in fandom... <laughs> I should get a sound clip for this, I think, Dave. Yeah, I think you should. Here we go. There we go. That's uh <laughs> that's what Richard had typed, but it actually comes from a song, and he ends with keep punching. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Richard, for writing it. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And yes, uh, some of those memories were shared with you, so it was nice to know that you enjoyed listening to them. But uh, interesting, just segue out of that, Rob. Hmm. Speaking of new fandom, I'm going to a con in a couple of weeks. (gasps) Really? Uh, Yes, not a Doctor Who con specifically. It's one of these big uh, cons. uh, So Supernova is is what it's called. It's very similar to Comic-Con in the US and the like. Uh, but Peter Capaldi, John Barrowman, and Pearl Mackie are all supposed to be there. Wow, that's going to be great. Uh, it is. So there's a number of other guests from a few other shows that are also going to be good. So I'm, for the first time in a few years, going to totter along to a sci-fi convention. I won't be dressing up for it, uh, but I'm sure a lot of people will. It'll be interesting to see that. And uh, I'm now just debating with myself how many hundreds of dollars I'm going to have to spend on autographs. So you're going for autographs rather than photos? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Um, but, I mean, Capaldi alone, I think, is about $100. And Mackie and Bannerman aren't much less. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fair. You know, uh, f- given for their status at this point in time, it, it's, it's not too bad, actually. I have seen autographs for more. It's not too bad by modern standards, absolutely. I'm not begrudging that. But I guess as we reflected in our fandom episode, I do remember the days when your entry to the con got you three autographs every day for free. Oh, yeah. But I think, you know, and I was talking to another podcaster about this. I can't remember which one it was, so I won't invent a name just in case it's the wrong one. I said it's really a mechanic of how many people are at a con. If, you know, 3,000 people come through the door and it's free to have Peter Capaldi's autograph, he can't sit there and sign 3,000 autographs because everyone would line up. The the money is almost a mechanic to stop people from buying an autograph and to actually make the autograph queue manageable. Yeah, look, that that is a, a practical reality as well. And, and the other thing, I guess, is that entry itself is only about $50, $60. So, yeah. you know, you are getting a lot of uh, uh, good guests for that. 
Uh, just to mention a couple of the other guests that are going to be along. Tom Welling from Smallville, I'll be interested to see. Mm-hmm. Probably won't go for an autograph, but be interested to see him. Alan Tudyk from Serenity. Oh, he's good. Yeah, and Firefly. and He was in Dollhouse. He was. He was the voice of the android in Rogue One. He was, yeah. So he's done a few things. Uh, they're probably the big ones that I recognise. There's a guy from The Walking Dead, Daniel Newman. I haven't watched that, but I'm sure he's a big deal to some people. Yeah, no idea there. No. So, yeah, there'll be a few guests, a few people I'll be interested to see. But, uh, yeah, Peter Capaldi, John Barrowman. Looking mm. forward to those. I'll have a report next episode. Excellent. I look forward to hearing it. Um, I have a final piece of Doctor Who stuff before I go to um, a question without notice in terms of what you're watching on TV at the moment. My Doctor Who piece is that I have found a cassette, Dave, and I've tweeted this. I don't know if you've seen the tweet. I know tweets can sometimes be lost in the ether. Mm, I didn't see that one, no. I have found an audio cassette from the 5th of March, 1994, and I know this because I've written it on there in my... uh, (laughs) handwriting of 1994 which is very um loopy and girly looking actually now that i look at it why was i writing like that my god we're we're Um, all a bit pretentious and into the record 24 yeah yeah and it's um it's an interview with kate orman oh and it's um it was conducted by myself and the editor of our local club fanzine um kate had been writing uh fan fiction for us for a few years at this point and so we knew Kate very well, and so we sat down in a cafe and had an interview, and that was going to be... A, because she she had just written The Left-Handed Hummingbird. I think that was coming out. I was about to say that would be about Left-Handed Hummingbird time, yeah. Yeah, and so it was like Kate Orman before she was published, and the issue that we were going to put this interview in never came out. And so the tape just sat on my shelf for years and years and years at my parents and then moved with me to the, uh, the house I moved in with my wife when I got married, and then we moved to another house, and now we've moved here... Um, have a new wife (laughs) you know life has changed quite a lot for me and I have found this cassette and do you know I don't have a cassette player in the whole house oh so I'm going to have to find one I I think I know where I can borrow a few or at least a Walkman I'm going to plug it into the PC I'm going to digitize it I'm then going to reach out to Mark who I know does most of the talking because um, I just sort of sort of sat there quietly and let him and, and Kate talk for most of it, as I recall. If he's comfortable with it, I'll then send it to Kate and say, look, here's something that could be horribly embarrassing from 24 years ago. Um, can I make it into a podcast? If she says yes, great. It'll become an episode of some kind, you know, a Doctor Who show presents um, Kate Orman 24 years late or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know I, what we'll call it. That sounds really interesting. I'll be very interested to hear that. But it's it's obviously going to be a time capsule. It's what we were thinking 24 years ago. It's before she even had any more books published. So it might capture a really interesting moment in time. And again, I stress that I'm going to talk to Mark and I'm going to talk to Kate. I'm just not going to digitize this and throw it out there because yes. that would be that would be impolite. It would be, yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping we can do this. But in the meantime, have a look on Twitter and you can see the cassette and my girly handwriting. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Before you go on to your question without notice, my final bit of Doctor Who-related comment, Mm -hmm. and that is just to, I think, I guess publicly send a farewell to our compatriots in Australian podcasting, which is 42 to Doomsday, who, since we were last on air, uh, released their final regular episode. That's right, and we stress regular episode now, because as they said on that episode, they were quite touched by the the outpouring of um, grief 
Uh, that's probably the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> the outpouring of emotion when they said they were going to knock it on the head. Because I think they announced it about three or four episodes early, didn't they? Uh, yes. They sort of telegraphed, we're going to do this in three or four episodes time. So there's been a lot of people commenting and saying, oh, it's a shame you're going and such. So their intention, as far as I understood that episode, Dave, is to come back from time to time, but just don't expect anything too soon. No, that's my understanding as well. But look, I can certainly remember the first email sent now i can't remember whether it was from rob or from mark but sent to our doctor who fan group saying does anybody else listen to podcasts and most of us went what's a podcast Mm. but the other person did reply yes i'm very interested in them and out of that grew 42 to doomsday and uh that was my introduction to podcasting and fan podcasting so it's opened up a whole world Uh, i think they have set a benchmark look they're very good friends of mine i I'm going to wax lyrical about them in that sense. But yeah, Mm. I think they have been a very good standard bearer for Australian Doctor Who podcasts, particularly. And we should also mention that they have caused a bit of a stir in their last episode. (laughs) They did. Because they produced an empty film can that has got markings on it suggesting that there were Doctor Who episodes in them. Now, this is really interesting because... Only now are we really starting to understand a bit better the way that the ABC functioned with a lot of these shows back in the day. For those who don't appreciate, this Australia being such a big country, for a long time programming here was regionally based, so it was usually based out of the capital cities. Mm. Something we're discovering now is just how that worked. And Richard, on the Goodies Pirate Podcast, has been doing a bit of research in how the Goodies was broadcast in Australia Remembering, of course, that season one of The Goodies is contemporaneous with season seven of Doctor Who, so very much in that edge of that missing episode period. What we're discovering is that there were never six copies of The Goodies, allowing it to go out the same night in every state, but neither does it seem that there was only one copy, meaning it had to go out on six different nights over the six states, which means there must have been at least one, if not more, duplicates. Mm. That seems to be what we're discovering may have been the case with doctor who where their duplicates made so that some capital cities could have them at the same time and what this film can could be suggesting is evidence supporting that theory that the abc did make duplicates of stories so that there could be you know one in melbourne and one in perth for example yeah that's right and i mean the the cynic in me always looking for um you know the the truth and all things thinks you know what you can write anything on a film can and say, look, it's a film cam with ta-da, this on it, whatever it might be. But I think the circumstances in which the film can was was gathered from someone who had basically got the, the film cans to store their LPs in, it wasn't like a Who fan trying to, you know, claim this as something other than it was. That was literally how they got the can. So I tend to think it, it was legit, you know, when, when I try and test it against, you know, how, how else it could have uh, appeared. Yeah, look, I have no doubt that the people involved in finding this film can, including Robin Mark, are absolutely genuine in their belief that it is authentic. Yeah. What I guess I'm saying is that if there is the possibility that this could prove or validate or, or help to expand our knowledge of how 60s Doctor Who was uh, cycled around Australia, that is a piece of research well worth doing. Now, if that research, when done properly does find out that this can is not the genuine article well you know so be it no harm done uh but it could be a very valuable piece of evidence so 
I look forward to seeing how that plays out as people who know more about these things than, you know, let's face it, you or I do, are able to uh, study this properly. Yeah, no, very, very exciting stuff. And, and what a cracker to go out on. Yeah, not bad, is it? Mm. Now, Dave, I mentioned a question without notice earlier, so I was really giving you a few, couple of minutes notice that I'd ask you what TV shows you've been watching because I have been watching lately Nightfall. Have you seen this being uh, spooked? I haven't even heard of it. Oh, Dave. Knights Templar in France after they've, they've left um, Acre in the Holy Land. They've given up Acre and, mm-hmm. and gone to live in France. Uh, the Holy Grail's involved. Um the Pope's involved. There's a uh, court intrigue with the king and queen. It's really fun, and it moves at such a pace. And Doctor Who connection. First episode was directed by Douglas McKinnon. Interesting. Mm. I'm going to have to have a look at that one. You've done me pretty well on some shows you recommended, so uh, <laughs> that's very interesting. I must admit I haven't been watching much, but. There are three series either returning or starting over Easter that I'm looking forward to. Uh, the new series of Suits will be out. Right. Uh, but we're going to get the reboots of Roseanne, perhaps more importantly for this podcast, Lost in Space. Yes. Now, that one snuck up on me. Uh, Lost in Space, that is. Yeah. I had no idea what was happening until suddenly, bam, there's a trailer. Yeah. Same. Exactly the same. Uh, so I'm really interested to uh see what this does I, I quite enjoy lost in space i've got the yes i've got the dvd box set sitting on a shelf behind me very interesting series series one is fantastic the others are fun not always great now uh, now that was after school fair too we often talk about after school fair in terms of what was on the abc but that was on a commercial network as i recall after school it was there were, it had a couple of repeat runs uh it had one certainly after school and then I was going to, I would say when I was at university, maybe the end of high school, I think university. So we're talking right at the end of last century. uh, The commercial stations did a full repeat run of the whole series. Because I remember that was the first time I saw all the black and white episodes. Mm. And they are really, really good, those black and white episodes. Like, really good. Oh, it's a fantastic series. And this new take on it looks like, given, given the topic we've been talking about tonight, updating things. Uh, it looks like it's updated in an interesting way. Yeah, I think that it looks like it's going to be a really good series. Whether it is good lost in space, I'll have to reserve judgment. Kind of like Star Trek Discovery. I think that's a really good sci-fi series. Is it good Star Trek? Nah, not so sure. <laughs> but it's a good series. I think this could be the case with Lost in Space. So that will be interesting. And I'm also very curious to see the new series of Roseanne. I uh, don't know whether I'll stick with that or not, but I'll certainly be checking out episode one because that was just such a big part of the 90s for me. Yeah, and, and young Sheldon that you've been uh, spruiking quite a lot in yes. past episodes is finally coming to commercial TV as well. Oh, good, good. Well, I hope any Australians who haven't seen it do check that out because I have a lot of time for that show. Yeah. All right, then. Well, another episode in the can, Dave. Gosh, that's March done. It is March done. So, Rob, we'll be back next month and... We're going to have a bit of fun next month, I think, because we're going to be talking about guilty pleasures. Yes. To do with Doctor Who, I gather. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. So those stories that deep down you know are not very good, but you enjoy for particular reasons. So we might each pick a, you know, small selection and uh, hopefully listeners, you'll be in touch with some of your 
guilty pleasures. The stories, like I say, you know, they don't have a reputation, and deep down, you know, they're you know, you you feel a little bit dirty watching them, but you enjoy it nonetheless. <laughs> dirty. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. No, that's going to be a lot of fun. I can already think of um probably two or three at least. Excellent. All right. Until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.